This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Last year, we ran a series on different aspects of substance use. And today, we'll hear a collection of those again, beginning with an issue that causes angst for a lot of parents. How to protect kids from experimenting with and misusing alcohol and other drugs. Parents often feel helpless in the face of media and peer pressure, but maybe they shouldn't feel that way. They make more of a difference than they might imagine. Associate Professor Nicola Newton is the Director of Prevention Research at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. So one of the commonest questions that parents have when they've got a young kid is, I don't want them to get into drugs. What the heck can I do? And they're terrified of it. Well, that is a million-dollar question. I wish I had the exact answer. I do. Well, have... it was nice of you to come on. And thank you very much. But <laughs> see you again sometime. I think the most important thing is for parents to know that they still have an influence over their children's choices when they become adolescents. In fact, they are the number one influence over their adolescents' choices at this age. There's a number of strategies. So, just before you go on there, mm. I, I had thought that the evidence was that you're a strong influence in the preschool years pretty strong in the early primary years, but as they get into upper primary, the peer group tends to dominate. So that's, yet again, I'm wrong. Well, I held that view as well for a very long time, Norman, it's only recently that we've found that that actually isn't the case. So whilst it may appear, and it may seem at the time, that peers are the most important influence in your life, parents still have a critical role to play in their adolescents' health behaviours and choices. So what is it? I mean, is this just saying we're going to set a limit here? You're not going to do this, that and the other. What is the behaviour of a parent that makes a difference? Okay, so there's a number of things parents can do that we know can help reduce the uptake of substances from their teenagers. First is to model good behaviour. If your kids are coming home from school and you're there having a glass of wine every night or a beer, that's not a good look. Don't get drunk in front of your kids and have a good relationship with alcohol. The second one is monitor where they are. Ask your kids where they're going, ask them who they're going with and ask them when they're going to get home. And finally, and probably most importantly, do not supply alcohol to your children. There was a traditional view that perhaps giving your kid a sip of alcohol or a taste here and there, a glass of wine at the Training table, them, in a sense, from good alcohol behaviour. That's it, thinking that you might be protecting them then from later harms. But what the Australian research and also research in the US and Europe is starting to show is that giving a kid any alcohol at all is increasing their chance of binge drinking and it's actually then increasing their chance of seeking alcohol elsewhere. And is that because it's as simple as they get a taste for it or is that because even a small amount of alcohol is affecting the developing brain? Well, that's an interesting question as well. We do know that the adolescent brain is developing until it's 24 and some of our recent research is showing that perhaps the brain doesn't recover in a way that it could recover from having small amounts of alcohol at an early age. Just to cap that off then, you've got to be self-aware. So even if you did like a glass of wine late in the afternoon... When you've got adolescent kids in the house, you just got to actually change your behaviour if you really don't want them to pick up a problem. You do. So model like a positive attitude with alcohol. So say no occasionally to a glass of wine or don't get your friends around and drink copious amounts of alcohol with them. Show them that there's other strategies for coping. Go for a walk, use exercise as strategies to cope with everyday stressful life. 
And what about your style of parenting? Because, again, out of date, but, you know, if you look at the longitudinal studies in the United States, which look at predictors of good outcome in adolescence, which is first experience of sex as late as possible, first experience of drugs as late as possible, because that predicts a more healthy future for you, that the parent who gives that warm, loving, but firm boundary type parenting got a better result. Is that still true? Well, it's true in the sense that if we can delay the onset of drinking, even by a year, we can reduce the chance of someone then developing a problem or a full-blown alcohol use disorder by 10% each year. So the more you can foster these good communication, loving homes, trying to stop someone from participating in drug taking and alcohol taking early on, the better chance they're going to have and the less mental health problems, the less severe substance use disorder problems they will ever develop. Have you run away from this parenting with firm boundaries? Okay, so talking about different parenting styles, we're working with some researchers in the Netherlands who have led a lot of work in the area of parenting and alcohol use and how different parenting styles can affect alcohol use behaviours. And what they're showing is that you need to have strict rule setting. So even if you drink alcohol yourself or if you take drugs yourself, it's really important that you still have strict rule setting for your teenagers. And those rules are even more effective when you share them with other parents of teenagers the same age as your children. And the other thing that parents get anxious about is the peer group that your child's mixing with and they're getting into bad company. How effective is the peer group in adolescence? You've said that parenting is really important. But again, if we're talking about the firmer style of parenting, setting rules, should you be setting rules about the people they can mix with? Very hard to do when they're adolescents. You can absolutely try, and I think you should try, because we know that peer influence is the number one reason that kids themselves say that they start to use drugs. So yes, we know that parents can be influential in terms of all health behaviours and risky behaviours, but we know that kids still say that peer influence is the reason they use drugs. So the bottom lines here are? The bottom lines here are prevention can be effective. It can be cost effective. For every dollar we invest in prevention, we get an $18 return. That is huge when alcohol and other drug use costs Australian society over $10 billion a year. So this is more than just parents and schools. This is, for example, the price of alcohol. Absolutely. Yes. Our alcohol is too cheap. Our alcohol is too cheap. And policy-based prevention interventions are certainly effective, but they can take a long time to come into play. So whilst we're waiting for them to happen, and let's keep pushing that, let's increase taxes, let's reduce supply, but at the same time, let's put in effective parent and school-based prevention to reduce the significant burden of disease from alcohol and other drugs. Associate Professor Nicola Newton is Director of Prevention Research at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. During pregnancy, women are told to avoid alcohol because there's no safe level of use. New research has found that even very small amounts of exposure can lead to a baby growing up to experiment with alcohol at a very young age. This behaviour is known as sipping, when a child has small sips from their mum or dad's drink And while it might seem harmless, it increases their risk of problem drinking later in life. Brianna Lees is a researcher at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. Tell us about this alcohol sipping study. I mean, it's it's both fascinating and horrifying, to be honest. 
Yeah, it was quite a surprising finding. We looked at the relationship between alcohol use during pregnancy and the likelihood of the children experimenting with alcohol by the age of 10. There's other data to suggest that if children begin sipping and experimenting with alcohol at a young age, they're more likely to go on to experiment more heavily with alcohol throughout their teenage years. So to go on to binge drink at a young age. And we also know from other studies that If kids are binge drinking at a young age, they're actually more likely to then go on to have an alcohol use disorder at some time in their life. And just describe the behaviour. What does it look like? So this can just be, you know, a sip of alcohol. It could be from their parents' drink. It could be at a, a friend's place. It's just, you know, having a sip of a glass of wine or a beer. This is a child who, you know, you might have taken your children to an adult party, an adult lunch, and the kids are off playing in the garden, but a kid comes in and surreptitiously has a sip of beer on the table or something like that, or there's a wine glass there and you find the child having a little taste. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so sort of that out. That's what sipping is, and you're looking at it in relation to the exposure of a woman to alcohol during pregnancy and around the time of conception. How reliable is that sort of question? Because people might not want to admit to drinking alcohol around about time of pregnancy. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge in this research. And we were also asking them, you know, to think retrospectively about alcohol that they consumed in the past. But the parents are sort of told that this is confidential information. It's not going to be linked back to them. And this sort of data is really helpful to understand this relationship. But there are definitely some barriers around self-report data as well. So given those caveats, tell us what you found. So we found that any level of alcohol use during pregnancy, so even low levels, having one or two standard drinks per occasion, was associated with a greater likelihood of that child experimenting with alcohol by the age of 10. So they were about 1.7 times more likely than a child who wasn't exposed to alcohol in utero. We found it was more to do with the length of time that the mother was drinking. So if a mother drank low or heavy levels during the early stages of pregnancy and then stopped, those children had a similar level of increased risk. Whereas if a mother consumed one or two drinks sort of here and there throughout the entire pregnancy, it was actually those children who had the highest likelihood of going on to sip alcohol by age 10. It could be that a mother who drinks throughout pregnancy has a genetic tendency to alcohol or the child's born into an environment where there's more alcohol around. There could be something different about mothers who drink during pregnancy than mothers who don't, which predispose the child to sipping rather than the alcohol itself. Yeah, yeah. the levels of alcohol use we were looking at in the pregnant mothers was really quite low. So it ranged from one standard drink throughout the entire nine months all the way up to 90 standard drinks. So overall, that isn't a huge amount of alcohol. But in the analyses, you know, because it was such a big data set, it meant we could look at a number of different factors that might have been a confounding factor that was contributing to the relationship. We know that alcohol use disorder runs in families and problems with alcohol use runs in families. So we tried to eliminate those children. And we also accounted for a number of birth-related factors and their environmental factors too. So as much as you could statistically, (laughs) you pinned it down to the alcohol rather than another factor. Yes, yeah. So what could the explanation be that you've 
change the brain of the baby in the womb? There's a few, I guess, hypotheses around this, and we definitely need more research. One possibility is that the brain has been impacted. We know that out of all of the organs in the body, the brain is most impacted by alcohol when the fetus is in the womb. Another option is to do with genetics. And we have found that there is a relationship there where a baby who's been exposed to alcohol, the structure of their brain is developing differently to a baby who or a child who wasn't exposed to alcohol. And that does appear to be a contributing factor, but it's extremely likely and it's definitely the case that other genetic factors would also be contributing to that relationship as well. And the bottom line is that the relative risk was 1.7, so it was 70% more likely, but it's not you're not condemning a child necessarily to sipping in a lifetime of abnormal alcohol use, but it does increase the risk. Yes, exactly. Now, you've looked at the psychological behavioural and neurodevelopmental outcomes in children with the same questions being asked of the mothers. We looked at a range of different outcomes. So looked at their brain development, so brain structure and also function, so how well the brain communicates. And then we also looked at uh, mental health outcomes such as anxiety, depression, aggression levels and also impulsivity. And what did you find? Again, any level of drinking during pregnancy was associated with emotional and behavioural problems in the children. These kids who were exposed even to one or two drinks per occasion, they showed higher levels of anxiety, of depression, uh, they had more attention problems or more likely to have a diagnosis of ADHD and they were more impulsive and aggressive as well. And the interesting part was that it was a graded dose effect. So the more the child was exposed to alcohol, the more significant and severe the findings. So in terms of ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder, these kids were about 30% more likely to have a diagnosis than unexposed kids. Researcher Brianna Lees from the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney. In a culture where drinking alcohol is so prevalent and part of almost every social occasion, it can be hard for young people to avoid the pressure to drink. Add to that research, which finds that people living with anxiety are more likely to turn to alcohol in unhelpful ways. And it's something that Martin knows only too well about as a young person. Luckily, he's come through well. I think just growing up in Australia in general, there's a lot of emphasis on drinking alcohol to be social. At a stage of my life where I felt a bit shy or insecure or not confident in who I was. Drinking alcohol was a way to combat that social anxiety. And what did that lead to? I, I think it led to experiences that weren't necessarily the best for me. It also didn't treat my anxiety. I think if anything, it usually made it worse. A lot of the anxiety was around growing up in Australia. I'm growing up as a migrant, having different identities. I think there was a lot of anxiety about finding my place in society. And what did you feel inside yourself so that if somebody's listening, they'd say, aha, that's what I feel, and I didn't realise that was anxiety? kind of felt like the world was spinning. It felt like you couldn't breathe. I always noticed the physical symptoms of anxiety. So I'd have shaky hands, or I'd have a dry mouth, or I'd just feel my chest beating very fast. Let's add alcohol to this story. How does alcohol enter this story for you? As a young person, there's the world of alcohol. You go there as a way, not detached, but I guess get away from your problems. It's a way to be social. It's a way people perceive to have fun. You see it as something to do with your mates. And if you're not doing it, then something's wrong with, not wrong with you, but you're different. So I think there's a lot of pressure there to drink. 
And did the alcohol use get worse or did it increase? I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by friends that were quite supportive. And also, I was aware of the services available. And what did they do for you? And where are you now? My anxiety is a lot better. The biggest help was seeing a psychologist. The psychologist really helped with addressing the underlying issues of my anxiety. Also, as a young person, like being social, things like that. They taught me techniques that were really helpful in coping with my anxiety. I think also just having friends that were super supportive, that understood that we didn't necessarily have to drink all the time. And what's your advice for a young person listening? I'd say that it's really important that you find a good group of friends that are supportive of your decisions to not drink alcohol or to be able to support you um, while you're feeling anxious. I know for myself, that's what's really benefited for me. That's Martin sharing his story about alcohol and anxiety. Dr. Lexine Sapinski is a clinical psychologist at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. She researches the relationship between anxiety and substance use and has helped to design an online program which in clinical trial results was found to reduce both anxiety and harmful alcohol use in young people. What we see in the general community and in people presenting for treatment, that these two problems commonly go together. So if you have an anxiety disorder, you're going to be two to three times more likely to also have an alcohol use disorder. People's anxiety symptoms will tend to precede their alcohol use disorder. So like in time, they'll have the anxiety younger in adolescence and then the alcohol use will come later. But I guess one of the things that's really important when we're talking about anxiety and alcohol use is they tend to feed each other. So it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. For parents of young children listening, there are young children who experience anxiety. The child who, when you ask the teacher, oh, they're a wonderful child, they never bother me, they're the perfect child in class. But in fact, they're quivering with anxiety at the back of the class, terrified the teacher might ask them something and and they shrink away. And they're often quite clingy. They have separation anxiety when the parents want to go out to the movies and leave a babysitter, that sort of thing. Now, is is that a predictor of alcohol use later or is that a different problem? The relationship between anxiety and alcohol is a little bit funny in that, yes, we do know that people with anxiety problems are more likely to use alcohol earlier and also to get into problems with alcohol use. But it's a bit of a mixed picture because sometimes anxiety can be protective. So a young person that you're talking about there who's very concerned about doing the right thing and, you know, probably quite afraid of getting into trouble, underage drinking might be very, very concerning for that person. So at times anxiety can be protective, but then for other people, it can be a risk factor because they can tend to use alcohol to cope with their symptoms, to self-medicate, to make them feel more confident. So it's a bit of a, a mixed bag. So you've got two young people with anxiety. Is there anything in them that would predict the features of that person or their anxiety that would suggest they're going to seek a substance like alcohol or cannabis or something else to effectively treat their anxiety to feel better versus another person who doesn't? In general, for young people, there are a number of factors that might protect them and conversely cause greater risk in terms of using substances. So these are things like the peer groups that they're in. We know particularly for adolescents, they're so affected by their friends. So whether they're in a peer group who are likely to use, but then also parents. Parents just play such a a really important role. And I know that often parents of teenagers say to us, I don't really feel like I have much influence over my teenager, but they really, really do. So things like having 
strong lines of communication, uh, role modelling, having clear expectations about alcohol use and other illicit drug use as well. So those things are really important in terms of protecting against substance use. So what you've been looking at is the situation where you've got, if you like, coexistence of anxiety and particularly alcohol use and other drug use. How does it evolve from there? What we tend to see happening is that someone who has both problems, the problems will tend to exacerbate each other. So to give you an example, one really common type of anxiety that people might use alcohol for is social anxiety, feeling shy, feeling a lack of confidence to interact with others. And of course, alcohol is so available in our social settings. But what can happen over time is the more that a person is using alcohol to feel confident, to feel able to talk to others, the more reliant they then are on use of alcohol for that and it can sort of erode away their confidence to interact with other people sober as well. So we see that over time they can be increasing the amount of alcohol that they're using and they can be doing things like you know needing to drink pre's before they go out because they're feeling like I can't I can't face these people if I don't take the edge off a little bit first. The problem can just tend to snowball I guess over time. Now you've developed this treatment program for it. Tell us about it. In our program, which is an integrated anxiety and alcohol program, what we did is we looked at the strategies in terms of how they could help people with anxiety, also how do they help them with their alcohol use, and we explicitly talk about the connection between the two. And I guess some people are really aware of the relationship, but other people aren't. So just kind of shining a light on that relationship between the anxiety and the alcohol use and helping them to put in alternative strategies, you know, when they are feeling like a drink because they're anxious. Because we know that it's really important to get in early with these problems, we want to get in before things become entrenched. So what we did is we developed an online program, which was for people aged 17 to 30. They may just find that they've got some anxiety symptoms and that they feel like they're relying on using alcohol to cope. It's a program that people can do purely on their own. So self-guided internet program, which young people told us was actually their preference in terms of accessing treatment. And so far the results are what? We trialled the program between 2017 and 2019 and what we found was that the program was able to reduce people's anxiety symptoms and also reduce their levels of harmful drinking and that was sustained over a six-month period. We're currently following up to see whether those effects have been sustained even longer so we're really hopeful that we'll see positive results in that as well. Dr Lexine Stabinski it's at University of Sydney's Matilda Centre and for more information you can visit inroads.org.au You can also call the National Alcohol and Other Drugs hotline on 1-800-250-015 or Beyond Blue on 1300 Many parents have angst about the pressures their teenagers will face to try cannabis, alcohol and other illicit drugs. But what puts some kids more at risk of becoming a regular user while others are able to avoid substance use? It turns out the answer might, partly at least, lie within the brain. Jennifer Debenham is a researcher with the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. I'd probably preface this by saying you can't look inside someone's brain and determine whether they're going to use drugs or not. We really talk in terms of risk and probability. So there are other environmental and social factors at play as well. But a recent review of the literature found um, that there are limited neural predictors of single-time substance use. However, for more frequent use, there are some neural associations with more frequent substance use. Specifically, we found that 
white matter integrity. Just to explain, white matter is if you like the cabling of the brain. Yeah, exactly. So we're looking at the cabling of the brain between um, the frontal cortex, so that's the front of the brain, and the limbic system, which is um, kind of towards the middle and deep inside the brain. And the frontal part of the brain is where we've got what's called executive function. This is where we can control our behaviour, control what we say, and also plan how we're going to do things in the future. That's exactly right. And the limbic is more basic than that. That's exactly right. So the limbic is more emotion and memory. What are the features of the cabling that may say, well, this person's more at risk or maybe more destined to use drugs? So it's white matter integrity, which is essentially a measure of the installation around a neuron. Around neurons, you've got this fatty tissue of myelin, and that strengthens our neural connections and it strengthens the speed at which messages are sent. So we find that um, the connectivity of these tracks between the, the frontal part of the brain and the limbic system play a role in risk-taking. So reduced white matter integrity is associated with risk-taking and also substance use during adolescence. But isn't that what adolescence is? And therefore, how do you differentiate it from normal adolescence? Because normal adolescents like taking risks. Well, exactly. But these are in samples where we're comparing across the board all adolescents and everyone develops at different rates. But there are particular trajectories of neurodevelopment which have, say, um, reduced white matter integrity. And that's more highly associated with substance use. So what you've said there is that in some young people, there is this cabling issue from the front of the brain through to the limbic system, the basic emotional part of the brain. Let's go upstream from that. Is there anything that predicts why the cabling problem occurs in the first place? That, that's a great question and hopefully a question we can answer with the ABCD study, which is um, currently tracking young people from age 10 all the way up for about 10 years and they're going to look at what typical trajectories of neurodevelopment look like and then what kind of you know atypical developmental pathways look like. Because currently we don't quite have this you know window of normal there's so, so many different tracks here. In terms of what might promote more negative developmental pathways from other research, you know, it's things such as the upstream determinants of health is kind of what you would go into there, which is such adverse childhood experiences and the like. Now, in the past, we've done quite a, quite a few stories on this, on, on the health report. And what we've spoken about is research, particularly from Melbourne, which looks at early use of alcohol, cannabis and other drugs. And talking about this cabling is that the process of growing up is like pruning a rose bush, is that you've got this overgrown brain when you hit adolescence and then that gets pruned, in fact, as you grow up. And what happens is that the pruning goes wrong and this cabling does not necessarily go in the right direction and it can be moulded to actually not just produce harm but a permanent sort of dependence or, if you like, predilection for drug use. Have you found the same sort of thing? Yeah, definitely on the money there. So this pruning process, you know, allows for, you know, leaner, meaner, more efficient brain activity. And at some stage it can go wrong. You know, maybe you have a delayed neurodevelopment, which increases your propensity to use substances, or maybe as a result of substance use, you get this, um, a change in the cabling. But I, I would be reluctant to say that, you know, that this always tracks into adulthood because what we're speaking about here is neuroplasticity. 
And this is the brain's inherent ability to change. And it's this pliability, this malleability, which is really characteristic of um, adolescence and, and young adulthood. And this, this neuroplasticity offers both the opportunity to grow and to change and to repair, but also this, um, the risk to damage. And it, it does mean the brain is more vulnerable to damage. But exactly how long this, um, this damage may, may last is, is still unclear. The, the jury's still out on that one. Jennifer Debenham is a researcher with the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.